0: In turbulent economic times, with TikTok-paced changes and trends, brands must pivot or die to stay relevant. In
1: each episode, we explore brands who made successful
0: pivots and those who didn't. This is Pivot or Die, How Brands Make It. Welcome to Two Peas on a Pod. I'm Rebecca.
1: And I'm Alejandro.
0: And this is a podcast where we have honest and open conversations about what making it truly means in the world of CPG. And today we have guest Zach. He is the co-founder of Rodeo CPG. And yeah, we're really excited to talk to you today. We're going to talk all about how you can position your product for scaling.
2: Perfect. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. And, And hopefully we can help a few brands out there who are listening.
0: Yeah, it's like so many rapid changes lately, right?
2: Uh always, but yes, I think that we we're, we're in another cycle here of, you know, some concern, you know, people are saying the R word a little bit just and and yeah. unsure of whether we're headed in that direction and and I think everybody gets a little unsettled when there is so much uncertainty. So that is certainly where we find ourselves.
1: Yeah, like you said the the R word, the unspoken word like the, we, we can say the word yet but um it's it definitely there is a bit of a tense environment going around and just soon after the pandemic we're kind of facing this now and um do you like think that this might be a result from the pandemic or do you think it's completely separate what are your perspectives on that
2: i don't know how much uh, obviously not a not an economist but how much it's directly correlated especially since some of the uh underlying indicators like jobs and um, wages and all of those still seem fairly strong. So we, we have this, at least in my opinion, kind of strange environment where, you know, inflation is certainly, um, you know, generating concern, but I, I don't know if we're headed toward, you know, a true recession or not. And, um, you know, I think the, the pandemic certainly, um, instigated, a lot of government spending so that that probably you know, uh, or, or inevitably led to you know an inflationary environment. But again, I think that the, the I always look at these things. everything's like this is cyclical. CPG specifically has had a pretty robust 15 years. Um, and I do believe that some of the valuations out there, the A activity, you know, some of those were a little getting a little out of hand. And, yeah, you know, some type of correction, you know, I think in, in some way was inevitable.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can. I, I see that too. And yeah, that definitely speaks to something we did want to ask you about that we thought listeners would really be encouraged by is that despite being a lot of doom and gloom out there, uh, due to the economy, you know, we're entrepreneurs, and we always are Built really to find the opportunities. I think a lot of the entrepreneurs right now are a bit burnt out right now. But I'd love to know like, trends and in industry practices in the next couple of years that brands can take advantage of. Is there any kind of hidden opportunities that you're seeing, or maybe not so hidden? Maybe they're clear to you, but something that might be hidden to a CPG founder right now. In a-
2: any time like this, tends to be you know an opportunity-rich environment for um, entrepreneurs that can pivot and get scrappy and, um, you, you know, I guess be more quick and nimble than larger companies. I think that that's always an opportunity when things get a little hard. I mean, in 2008, certainly that was one of the like boom period for consumer packaged goods startups. So why was that? It was, you know, a lot of the bigger companies stopped innovation. They, they, they were buttoning that, you know, getting really tight on marketing spend they were retracting hmm. and if you weren't burdened by that you know huge amount of overhead and and you know all of that you know infrastructure then you could move really quickly and and you know grow and and take advantage of niche clients and and you know all of that so i i think that this time is no exception to that um yeah. I think then from a practical standpoint, you, you know, when you are faced with, you know, a tighter investment um, environment, then sometimes it forces you to make you know hard decisions around, you know, personnel and uh opportunity and um things like that where maybe it's maybe it's beneficial for your brand to get a little tighter and a little scrappier, you know, so that you can grow, you know, more more. I guess, intelligently down the line. Um, so those are, those are a couple things. I, I don't think there's any secret, you, you know, yeah. out there that you, that you could take advantage of, but I, I do think that being pragmatic and nimble certainly serves smaller brands in this time.
0: Yeah. I love that perspective. Cause I think that uh, if you're a small brand listening, you're thinking, Right now, it could be very easy to think, all oh, the bigger companies are going to dominate me because they have the cash flow just because of that alone, just because they are comfortable. But actually, discomfort does drive innovation. And yeah, something we saw for sure when you, when you scale back and you have to really think about where every dollar is going and where every ounce of energy is going, because it's also energy right now. I think everyone's a little bit burnt out. So if you're thinking about how you can scale in that regard, you're going to be set up for higher profits down the road too. And you're actually more nimble. So that's awesome. I really appreciate that. With the CPG industry, I know that it's, I feel there's been so many different transformations over the, over the last few years, Um, aside from like all the economic stuff, just even in terms of trends, like we're certainly seeing a higher demand for vegan products or even healthy snacks and at a premium price, right? Oat milks um, rather than regular milk. Um, Yeah, these types of brands coming up quite a bit. What is the biggest shift that you've noticed?
2: Well, I think the pandemic accelerated consumers' willingness to buy online by about 10 years. Um, That being said, I think that a lot of brands... And investors saw that as a means of, of almost, you know, making consumer brands like act like technology companies. And at the uh, you know at, at the mm-hmm. end of the day, they're 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 not like a yeah. CPG uh, company is not going to, you, you know, translate. In the same way from an ROI perspective and a scalability perspective as software does. So I think that that has been a sobering realization over the past six months where DTC is great. It's a way to connect with your consumer. It's another sales channel, but it's only that. It's another sales channel. It's not a completely revolutionary business model. Um, Mm. It's just another way to get product in the consumer's hands. And if you're good, you know, take some of that data and knowledge of the consumer back, so that you can you know create better products or, or better connection with your with your end customer. So, you know, I think that's happening right now, where we're we're seeing kind of a pullback on DTC only companies and, and realizing that if you really want to scale, you have to be in retail still. I, f- um, I
0: agree. I find that, uh, I almost think of it even as a way to market your product. Like I'm making my decisions of what I'm putting in my mouth in my weekly shopping routine. I'm it's, it's rarer that I would get it online necessarily, but I would do that after I really enjoyed something that I tried for the first time. And with food, trying is a huge part of it. I, I think marketing is also very important, of course, but only to amplify what's already there. Um, and then to get the client to come back, you need that good tasting product. And that's when they might want a bulk discount order to support you or they're drawn to your founder story, right? Yeah, very interesting. So you found that a lot of, companies went um maybe they saw the success of like kylie jenner or these big celebrities that's a trend we've been seeing a lot where it's a big celebrity endorsing um i know even Kin just did that with their beverages i think it's Gigi hadid or i don't know don't misquote me someone like that and so or bella i
2: think it was bella, was bella. yeah Bella. Yeah,
0: yeah. oh yeah oh you know okay yeah you're a fan <laughs> <laughs> so bella hadid and uh And that might be something too, right? It's like uh, there's this kind of hype for these like online focused brands that do work when there's a huge star power behind them, but maybe not everyone. Have you noticed
1: specific, I guess, niches within the food industry that perform better in an e-com scenario versus a retailer or reseller scenario?
2: well, it, I can answer that question in a few different ways. I think that there are certain categories that have a head start in consumer behavior like consumers are just used to buying them online. uh health and beauty products fall in that category. pet has fallen in that category um and then things like snacks and things like that. people were not as used to buying online. and so we're seeing you know growth in in that area now where and it's also just the pure, The second side of that equation is the pure economics. So, Mm -hmm. you you know, in order for a frozen brand to succeed online with the freight, like their average order size has to be between 60 and $80. Now, Mm -hmm. obviously that's prohibitive if you like, or relatively prohibitive if you're buying popsicles, like really hard to buy $80 of popsicles in one sitting. (laughs) That being said, you know, I'm, I'm on the board of a, a tamale company and they do wonderfully online. And because people, I, I guess, buying a family pack for $80 for three meals is much more palatable in that, in that sort of like food group. So I, I think that it's a, it's a question of, of pure economics, and then it's a question of consumer behavior and what people have historically you know, felt comfortable buying online.
1: It is true that the tamales like, uh, the, I mean, I'm Latino and we have like bigger households and we're, we tend to like like to have our, our niche foods and, and ready to go kind of thing.
2: So that makes a lot of sense. Very interesting. Yeah. 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 It's been fascinating because they do their own fulfillment and, and you know, it's a two and a a half, $3 million business that keeps growing. And, you know, I think that that is you know, a testament to, to consumer behavior. Um, that being said, direct consumer also, almost always, and of course, there will always be kind of anomalies out there that have just done wonderfully online. I think that there's the more often than not, there will be a point in time at which customer acquisition cost is too high to continue to market online. And certainly like the iOS 15 thing translated to that, the changing algorithms, all that contributes to that reality. But at the end of the day, at some point, it's it'll be more and more expensive to capture an additional customer and that's when people realize oh oh no like i need growth i, I have to get into retail because that's where the scalability and, and growth comes from
1: do yeah. you see that that's like a, a common issue right now that's holding people back but you know they come to be like hey listen i started an e strategy and i'm not seeing growth and how can i and then you you know you have to inform them or, or educate your clients by telling them you know. It might've worked during the pandemic, but now we're seeing actually a pushback.
2: Totally, and and, in fact, we're starting to productize new service offerings to help Hmm. DTC native companies evolve into a retail environment. And it's almost never a one-to-one transition. So it it has to involve packaging changes, case pack changes, Potentially, right. you know, product changes. So um, that is something that has merged a lot in the past six months.
0: It's um, a completely different, yeah, different quality. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. When you mentioned the changes in packaging, is it mostly because uh, comp- for compliance purposes or?
2: or no, design? well,
1: what are you sometimes,
2: seeing? sometimes for sure. But then, you know, you think of, yeah, I'll take a real life example. Uh, Omsom, which is a brand that we uh, helped launch and and um, I, I invested in, and they have done just tremendously well online. But it, but knew pretty early on, or, or it became pretty apparent that retail really, you know, is the scalability and, and opportunity at large. And so, you know, the the, the ounce sizes had to change. Uh, because you know consumer perception around price per ounce is is distinct on the shelf. Um, right. They they had to create different packaging around caddies and tear off you know case packs and all the practical realities of now having to work with a distributor and a and a, and a retailer versus just sip, shipping like this beautiful custom thing to the end consumer, which is how they built their business. So that that's just mm-hmm. a. perfect real life example of how you know the 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 item the size the packaging all had to change so that it was suitable for retail
0: we had a a client years ago that had rectangular packaging and was doing quite well this was an underwear company and they were doing quite well online and then they went retail and people you know they're just like how are we supposed to stack these they're falling you know it was just impractical it was like it was kind of like oh this is a cool decision because like it's cool and different but then it's like different in a bad way, like it was too in, impractical. So yeah, that can, that's cool that you say from that side. Do you do you see some compliance issues though, in terms of people selling online and getting away with um, like less compliant packaging or?
2: Not, uh, not tons. Cause I, I think that the compliance between DTC, if you, and, and uh, in retail is fairly correlative as, as long yeah. as you're like working with groups that know both and, and, you yeah. know, maybe there are tweaks here and there that need to be made, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen a ton of that from a, from, yeah,
0: out. you are working with companies that are maybe even on Amazon and things like that is different. It's just, sometimes we have clients that come to us that are coming out of even like a farmer's market type of phase and wanting yeah. to approach retail and they've done labels and they sell them online, but it's definitely not like per to regulation, but yeah. Okay. Sounds good. I I want to talk a lot about your expertise as well, because there are, um, definitely I'd, I'd love to know what some of the most common issues are that hold back a CPGs ability to scale. And, uh, Maybe you can approach it from all three of the perspectives that that uh, your company works from, which is product development, operations, and sales. What are ways that new brands can get ahead of this?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a broad question. I, I bet you, like this group, could talk you know for yeah. weeks about things that that yeah. you be on the yeah. lookout for. But but yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, we take an integrated approach and we built the competencies around R&D sales and operations because in many ways, while those things appear to be very different, they all should be integrated when Mm -hmm. you're creating new products and new brands. Um, You know, Cogs is a huge one that we see all the time where someone, you know, creates the product, falls in love with the product, the product's amazing. But then in reality on shelf, Either it's way too expensive, you know, for mm. for consumers to buy at large, or they're making negative margin on the product, and they're never going to make any money. And so, yeah. I yeah. think having really strong margins from the get go is something we you know talk about all the time because there's a there's a feeling or or a, I guess a a preconceived notion that you know you'll achieve greater margin at scale. And this mm-hmm. very rarely happens in any meaningful way. Right. So right. you know, I think margin is hugely important. I think go-to-market strategy is important, not just being like, hey, I just need to blow up into retail and then start spreading yourself too thin mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. understanding that getting on the shelf is the easy part. And then getting a consumer to repurchase is the hard part mm-hmm. and the magic. Uh, and I know that you guys, are always thinking about velocities and and, and you know all of all of positioning, branding, packaging. All of it relates to you know a, a consumer and, and their their uh, willingness to not just buy it one time but keep buying it. And and that is again, it, very few entrepreneurs get all those things right from the start. And those that are willing to listen to the consumer and keep changing. Those are the ones that have much greater chance of success, ultimately.
1: I'm sure that the quality of the product itself is key in, you know, if someone's going to repurchase. But are there ways in which people can uh, entice people to repurchase a product other than just the quality of itself?
0: Or even a mark- like a sale or a marketing campaign. Yeah.
2: yeah, I mean, you guys, I'm sure, have an opinion on that, as I do. I, I think that it is... Being authentic, I think it's working online and connecting to consumers, and and understanding who your tribe is from a very early stage, and and committing to that tribe. Not trying to go too broad too quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, l- look at Cliff Bar. I mean, that was originally a bar for outdoor enthusiasts and climbers. That's yeah. it. And then you know, gradually because of the the ethos of the company, it it was broad, more broadly accepted you know, by a larger audience. So I think it's that, I think it's, it's putting together intelligent promotional and trade programs within each retailer that you're selling in. Mm -hmm. And that's hard because retailers will sell you all sorts of things. Some of things actually sell products. Some are things are just profit centers Mm -hmm. for the, for the grocery store. Um, So tying that in then the whole merchandising piece, making sure that, you you know, there are boots on the ground and making sure your product is well represented and that shelf tags are up and all the, just the practical stuff of selling in a grocery store. Those
0: Um, are the things that people may not know when they have their dream, right? That whole, like you were saying, you know, CPG owners are starting this out of a passion and then, you know, you're really there to help them take a step back and be like, is this viable? And I think that's so important. It feel totally aligned in how you're describing the ways to get people back in. Like, I think, I think we definitely are very aware of like, yeah, like we want to make sure that they have that tribe online. We definitely agree with hyper niche. It's definitely something where everyone wants to market to everyone. But if you're starting out, don't bite off more than you can chew and just really learn that one target mar- markets needs. And, uh, and, and we actually like to use the example of Crocs too, like bar. I love cliff bar example. That's perfect. But Crocs, same thing, right. Where they started with that one in their case, it's like the one skew in a few different colors. And then they just blew up. And then now they start more and more adding more and more, um, footwear to their, like more and more styles to their line after they've kind of got that market share and captured that market share. That makes a lot of sense. But in terms of the Side of hey, when you get a retailer, these are all the ways that you're going to have to keep that relationship in place. That is something too. Do you find that people try to get into too many retailers too quickly?
2: Yeah, and and you know, I can say all these things, and it's easy to say. It's really hard to like put all the these practical realities into play when it is your your baby or whatever, like your business, your passion. it becomes, you know, much more difficult. So, you know, it's not easy, but it is really important for you to distance yourself in that way. And, and again, I even have written an article about like, don't ever call your company, your baby. It's not like, it's, it's not a part of your family. It's an asset that you are a steward of, and you are responsible of growing responsibly, but it is not like connecting yourself so intrinsically to a brand is just recipe for, you know, I, at least I think uh inhibiting its necessary evolution and growth. So um that's important. I lost your question though, before I went off I on that tangent. I
0: like, I don't know, but I, I think that's a, I love that you said that because that's a really interesting perspective. And how do you kind of So, because, you know, now I feel like there's this whole side of personal branding too, where the founder gets this kind of status and that Mm -hmm. also is helping them, of course, from like an investor perspective, but it's also part of the storytelling behind the brand and the consumers may rally behind a brand where they know, they feel a more emotional connection to the person who is creating it and the celebrity thing too, we're talking about as well. It's another kind of piece. So I guess these can still separate you know, the the investment side of the business, but it almost is becoming part of your persona, right? And connected to you. Do you see that a lot?
2: Yeah, of course. And I think that you have to strike a balance there. Like, mm. I think that people always like to relate to people, not brands necessarily. So that piece of authenticity is really important. But if you do your job, you work that like, how important the person is to the brand out of it. So think Mm. of some, some brands like Justin's nut butter, like Justin started very much with Justin gold and he was out there all the time. And, you know, he, he was uh, a a really strong sort of uh, personality that people could connect to at some point though, Justin's became a brand that that went beyond an individual. Mm-hmm. Likewise, with Primal Kitchen and Mark Sisson, who ran, you know, his blog first, and it was really all about Mark. And then Primal Kitchen became, you know, a brand in and of itself and stands on its own. So and the celebrity thing is interesting. We've seen a lot of celebrity driven brands. We've worked with a lot of celebrity driven brands. Mm-hmm. It can be completely meaningless or it can be, really intrinsic to the brand and it all relates to how like authentically involved mm-hmm. that personality is. So if you look at a brand like um uh Jen Garner and Once Upon a Farm, she's super involved in that brand. Like she's mm-hmm. going out, she has children, she has a farm, she's she is really in that company and that is uh you, you know a recipe where your celebrity, um, in like your, like leverage ability and audience, you, you can effectively leverage that audience. If it's inauthentic, it doesn't. And I, I, like uh, an example that comes to mind is, you know, Beyonce invested in watermelon water, but it was just an investment and it didn't do anything. Like, even though Beyonce has millions of Instagram followers, and like, uh, it, it didn't matter because right. it wasn't like she, she wasn't, it wasn't her company. It felt it like a, an ad, you know, yeah, it was an ad. And, yeah. and it's not a detriment to Beyonce or or, or anything. No, it's just yeah. that you've got to do the the actual work in order to really leverage a celebrity personality.
0: Right, right. Right. Yeah. I think we got a lot of great insight in this conversation. Is there anything else that you wanted to leave the um, listeners out there with any pieces of advice or thoughts on? Uh,
2: I would just say that, you know, in, in, in these environments, investors start to put a lot of pressure on brands. Uh, growth becomes, you know, the single topic of conversation everywhere. I would say that just be cautious about about growth. Um, you, you know, as as a as a quick plug, Rodeo's created a piece of software called Pitchable that helps brands connect with independent retailers throughout the country um, at just nine dollars a qualified lead. So in that way, like looking. The industry is changing. So looking for new tools and pieces of technology that will allow you to be more efficient in your sales efforts, I think is really important, you know, in an environment like this. So, um, but I'm always available if anyone has an issue or, or
0: yeah, tell them where to find you. Yeah. Tell yeah, them where to e- find you. Yeah.
2: Email is just Zachary Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y at rodeo cpg.com. So, or, you know, on the website, you, there, yeah. you can fill out a form and, and a uh, contact contact us that way but we're very accessible and happy to help in any way that we can.
0: We actually found you through the Jumpstart program because there are a few entrepreneurs you helped that we were connected with and that's Sweet. another that's another great resource especially if you're in the early phases because I know that, you know, you guys do have a certain qualification for the clients you take on. So the, you know, the Jumpstart is such a great option too for people to get a sense of what they need to do if they're in the just the beginning phases is that right? Did I put pitch it right? <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. You're, okay. hi- you're you're hired. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. This was awesome. And uh, yeah, we hope everyone got something out of this. This was great.
2: Cool. I appreciate the time and good to meet you Alejandro and hopefully we'll
1: uh, chat again soon.